So welcome everybody to episode 65, Valley Forge, Almost a Trainwreck, Part 2. And if you recall, on our last episode, we left George Washington's ragtag Continental Army without any shoes in the snow, marching their bloody way to Valley Forge in December of 1777. The year 1777 had been a lousy one for the American cause. Washington couldn't seem to decisively win a battle against the British, who held the American capital of Philadelphia. Other generals were actively conspiring to have Washington removed and replaced by themselves, most notably Horatio Gates, who actually had won a decisive battle against the British at Saratoga. Congress was in exile, unable to raise the money needed to keep the army fed and supplied, and it was winter. The only good news about winter was that armies tended to avoid campaigning when it was cold. The bad news was that it was cold. See the part above about no shoes. So the situation was dire. The whole thing left me thinking that the army's prospects were not good at all. The safe bet was on the British to win. But I've learned to realize my own shortcomings. Or to be frank, my wife informed me that I really should grow up and acknowledge that not only am I not as funny as I think I am, but that I also don't know everything about everything. And I should consult people who know things instead of making stuff up. To that end, I've invited a special guest on the show to help me with all the things I don't know about military history and strategy. Colin Farrell has been a high school teacher for <clears throat> years. He is a recurring guest on the Drinks with Great Minds in History podcast, which you should all listen to if you don't already. Not right this second, because we're kind of in the middle of something, but after this episode. He is also a regular contributor to DGMH's fantastic Patreon page, to which I myself subscribe. Cullen runs a series called Cullen Chats China, where Cullen, well, you get the idea. He is also an acclaimed poet. His three books of poetry, Drinking with COVID, American Penance, and Unstoppable, are all available on Amazon. This isn't just flowery words that rhyme. In many cases, it's poetry about history, so you know I'm a fan. All three are definitely worth reading, and I'll put links in the show notes where you can go find them. And since Cohen and I are friends on Facebook, I noticed that he spends quite a lot of his free time playing military strategy board games. This gave me the idea to bring him on the show to consult about the military situation in America in 1777. Hi, Cullen. Welcome to the train wreck. Hi, Stace. Thank you for having me. Uh, that's quite a build up. Thank you very much for uh, allowing me to come in and uh, babble. I hope I, I live up to the military uh, acumen that uh, that you've bestowed to me. I, I, I do enjoy uh, strategy and uh, and tactics and military history was a minor of mine in college. So, so that's good. This do. will be a, a welcome change of pace for my audience. They'll get uh, <laughs> they'll get solid information. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about yourself and your many activities? Um, I've taught now for 31 years. I just took a sabbatical, as you know, and uh, recently came back into the classroom. I have another couple of years to go in the tank here before I'm uh, on a beach somewhere permanently. But uh, I do enjoy working with uh, young people. And, and of course, like you mentioned, games, uh, gaming is one of my hobbies. So anytime I can fuse that in with the classroom, uh, it's a way to kind of get kids interested in history and the what ifs and outcomes and things of like, like that nature. So, but uh, yeah. Okay. So on to my questions then. Okay. Um, in our last episode, I posited that the Americans seemed well on their way to defeat in the early years of the revolution and that on paper, at least their chances were not good. And so I want to ask you about your, your opinion on the continental army's chances of winning, first of all, and their track record, from the beginning of the war to to uh, winter, uh, basically December of 1777. So um, 
Uh, we we were talking earlier pregame here, and uh, one of the the terms I mentioned was uh, this is the hail mary pass that George Washington has to throw in order to both stay relevant as a Continental Army and to keep the soldiers in past when their terms of service are up, which is January first. Uh, by this point, Congress has fled. Um, I think they left uh, Philadelphia and uh, were on either in route to Baltimore or York. I can't remember which one they, they went, went to York. It was they York. went to York, yeah. and uh, and so basically they leave uh, Washington carte blanche in charge to do whatever he sees necessary. And uh, six months prior into the war, um, Britain had, had had handed them a tremendous defeat at New York, uh, the Battle of Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights. And it's kind of ironic because they had crossed uh, swords with the Hessians there at that time. And the Hessians will slaughter 500 Continentals captives, uh, which, you know, they, they said were uh, um, uprising militants. But, the, you know, of course, Washington said, no, they're Continental regulars. They should be treated per the rules of, reg- of war. So there was some payback in order to get back at the Hessians for that slaughter. Um, and, and of course, uh just one statistic, and I'll shut up here. Uh, at the start of the war, um, the Continental Army had started in New York City with 20,000 men and 300 artillery pieces. By the time the crossing of the Delaware happens, um, because Washington had split his force into three, uh, Washington has about 2,000-some men and maybe only 18 artillery. So from 300 to 18 artillery pieces, they're just a ragtag army at this point. And either they win or they die. You know, that's that's why you tax on Christmas Day. So in thinking about so in my last episode, I, I basically went through how bad 1777 was um, in which it started off OK with uh, the battle at Princeton. But it kind of went downhill after that with uh, American defeats and retreats. And what what uh, worst of all seemed like a series of screw ups. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you know Washington and his immediate generals were amateurs they were self-taught <laughs> and um, anytime that things didn't go well the consensus around the world was well what do you expect these guys are not generals they're pretending right. so in your opinion do you think that the, the the military history of 1777 was as bad as we thought or were there bright spots um saratoga saratoga would be the bright spot um i believe that was prior right i'm I'm Uh, saratoga was uh, october um 1777 yeah Uh, so yeah and so that's a huge turning point that shows that the british army can be beaten um freeman's farm and oh there's two saratogas i guess um but uh it also uh (laughs) Uh, Granny Gates, uh, that's his moment of, he gets the, the, the victory. But as you know, from our DGMH uh, show, uh, Zach, if he were here, would contend that that's Benedict Arnold who, uh, who leads that drunken charge. Uh, so it were. Um, and, uh, and so that is a huge uh, point that gets notoriety of France that, Hey, the Continentals have beat a British force and an open field army uh, battle, you know, um, so that would be one highlight in 77. Um, the other, but... the other thing I noticed about seven, about well, Saratoga and, and some of the other um, uh, battles that uh, where Washington faced the British is that the British themselves seem to at times help the Americans win. Like 
Johnny Burgoyne and his drunken <laughs> his drunken so you know ambling down from Canada, where oh look, there's some people here and they're shooting at us like, um, and they, and there were seemed like there were times where General Howe, William Howe didn't press either didn't know that he was involved in a major battle or didn't press the attack right uh, when right. he could have yeah in november december he dawdled waiting for the river to freeze before crossing the delaware and he also figured well we have these 1200 hessians that we've hired out let's use the mercenaries let them like drive uh you know washington's army to ground you know why should we get the british regulars involved when we've already paid good coin to these these Hessian mercenaries. And so uh, that was another uh, how, you know, he was kind of like not in a hurry to get down there uh, as much. Did you Um, have a sense, did you have a sense that the generals, the British generals who got this job of ending the rebellion, um, starting with uh, Thomas Gage and going through how the Howe brothers it felt like they didn't really want to be doing this. Like, like this, this really didn't dovetail with what they thought they should be doing as part of their career. And it wasn't until Cornwallis and Tarleton took over that they really started to press the war. Yeah. Because I'm trying to remember the order. It goes how, uh, and then Clinton, I think Clinton takes over. Mm -hmm. And then you're right. Cornwallis, of course, who's a vetted commander, although he's fighting in India. Or he was he was all over the place, uh, Cornwallis. But um, uh, getting back to generals, if I could, um, Lee was one of Washington's big thorns, and I think you did a show on Lee. Oh, uh, last covered, spring, <laughs> we yeah. covered Charles last, Lee in yeah. Death. Yes. And I mean, talk about, uh, you know, competing problems for the continent. Like Lee's sitting there thinking, I should be the one that's calling the shots. Why is, you know, Washington should have never been picked over me? You know, so he almost wants to see this fail. Um, and, and if you know the story, you probably do. Uh, Lee gets caught, right, drinking at a tavern. Yes. <laughs> like they're supposed to be keeping a low profile, keeping the army like scattered so that they can't get snuffed out. And Lee goes and gets himself arrested. well and And then then and then in britain while he's in captivity he's writing up battle plans for the british here's how you take them out (laughs) right like get rid of my uh get rid of my competition yeah uh and then uh, i think gates does reunite with washington prior to trenton but then they have a big uh brouhaha about tactics and what we should do you know like you know i don't think gates was big on the deal of going across the river and attacking you know uh It was it was risky. And so I think I think you know, Washington relieves Gates of command for, for that operation. He gives his troops to. Uh, oh, I forget who he who he gave them to. But maybe yeah, I wrong. think I think Washington, uh, you know, in general, because after they come out of Valley Forge, Charles Lee gets paroled and he's back with the army. And uh, there was a. Um, uh a detachment, you know, the, the, the front, the front line was supposed to go to the Marquis de Lafayette and Charles mm-hmm. Lee is like, well, hold on now. I've been, I've been vacationing with the British for a while, but I'm still second in command. So I should have the right to do this. Yeah. And, yeah. um, and Washington, you know, relented and then Charles Lee, uh, retreated. And so, uh, even the guys who said we can do this better than you when time actually came to do it, they, didn't do it. Couldn't do it. They didn't do it. Yeah. And yeah, Lafayette would have been a much more capable. <laughs> yeah. Well, because he, yeah. because like Nathaniel Green and Henry Knox, 
he wanted to do it like for mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. cause and not for any sort of personal gain which i think is a huge distinction between horatio gates charles lee and the so-called amateurs who are who are on the continent you know running the continental army right right yeah that's true um there was also a uh, speaking of commander there's colonel glover who was in charge of the boats and he was in charge of logistics and moving the army uh across the river and up and down uh all, well, you know, he was uh they were from i think they're a marblehead uh they were like a group of sailors that were kind of an attache yep. to the force and uh and if I don't, re I think they, they, they commandeered those boats from a foundry or something, basically when they crossed, you know, and and that's where I think uh, Gates thought Washington was crazy. Like, you know, you, you want to, what do you want to cross in the middle of the night? And, you know, like this is going to go horribly wrong. We're, we're, we're fighting trained soldiers, professional soldiers in the, uh, but. So to me, to that point, you know, Horatio Gates was a British um, soldier. Charles Lee was a British soldier. And it feels like at least part of their problem with George Washington was that he was uh, non-traditional. You know, he was a backwoods fighter, which they looked down on him for. But right. in the early days of the war, it was the surprise successes that put the British back on their heels. And to that end, Gates, Howe, those guys with Washington were all in Braddock's expedition yes. in 1756. They, you know, they were, they were military guys and Washington was always on the outs, you know, with, he wasn't a true British officer. And yet he, he was the one that, you know, ends up coordinating. He's as the attache of Braddock. He's the one that fights and retreats back to uh, Fort necessity, keeps the army alive um, so when it comes to displacing and fighting and falling back, and I call it rope a dope, you know, like yep. if you know the Ollie term in yep. boxing, you don't have to beat the other guy up. You just have to outlast and out wear that guy down. That's how you win a match. So that gets to my next question. Um, the, the Fabian strategy, right? The, the one where you just kind of no pitch battles, um, we're going to harass supply lines. We're going to do guerrilla attacks. Mm -hmm. um, it felt, you know, on on paper, the textbook advantages or disadvantages that the British had were long supply lines, uh, lack of knowledge of the terrain, a hostile local population, and guerrilla tactics, which just were not their thing. Um, do you think that all that would have been enough for the Americans to prevail if they had really just doubled down on the Fabian strategy, or was it inevitable that a France had to come along and help them out? Oh, this is a tough one. Um, irregular warfare is a means to an end, and it will harry and harass an army, a standing army, for a long period of time. We see this all through history, and I'm sure you listened to my birthday special on the Drinks with Great Minds. That was the topic, was you know insurgencies and irregular warfare is really yes. what what can win the day sometimes if you, you know, I just ask the Taliban what 22 years of, you know, but that last, outlasting, be, right? But, but that seems to be the thing is that in order for that to work, um, it takes a really long time. And it felt like America didn't have that kind of time. 
it didn't have that kind of time. And in order for the, um, for the sovereign to win in that situation, it has to do what's called total war. It has to burn crops, scorched earth, because when, if you're going to fight an insurgency, it has to be across all levels and all sectors of that society in order to win. And, and the, the gentlemanly attacks of the day, you know, the British empire, um, I, I didn't, I, I can't see them, you know, rounding up women and children and stuff like that, you know, to, to that end. I, I think well, of the Boer weird. war, you know, the Boer war, it's jump around here. I'm a world history teacher. You know, the <laughs> British army had to fight the Boers in South Africa. Same problem. Guys hit and run, hop on their horses, snipe from the hills. And before you can catch them, they're gone. The only way the British empire could win against the Boer was to round up the women and children in concentration camps and then so it, forget to feed them and right, not and feed it, them. Uh, well, and it seems like, you know, when you talk about Thomas Gage and, and William Howe and Henry Clinton on the British side, it seemed like they clearly did not have the stomach for that. No, no, but no, no. but later in the war, it seemed like Cornwallis and Bannister Tarleton actually uh, you, did. You told, I was just going to Tarleton. Yep, you took my thunder because oh, no. he he is willing to do the bad thing, the hard Total thing war, to yeah. break an insurgency, and that's the way you break an insurgency. Sadly, and yeah, and, yeah. and so you know, with, with, with that in mind, you're right. They're not going to do that north of dixie or you know they're in the north they're not going to put people asunder and you know and so yeah france france coming in it is the saving grace um you know and it's kind of ironic you know france it was so hard to get france in it took so long ben franklin <laughs> god bless him he he was the patient he played the long game you know, to get the French. I read. Tag. I read somewhere that uh, they say that Franklin's contribution to the American Revolution was second only to Washington's because because of the the diplomatic, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and and if you look at how pivotal France's involvement was, that oh, kind of holds water. Yeah, Rochambeau and um, oh, well, I mean, we already had Lafayette there, but yeah, um, yeah. So it's um. Gee, but but, oh, but basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, what we're saying is, is that despite some inherent advantages that the Americans had, mm-hmm. um, in order to win the revolution and drive the British out, they were going to have to win battles. Um, they were going to have to stand up and be a professional army uh, on a par with with the British Empire, who at the time were perceived as the best at it. And yeah. so, and so, uh, in addition to the Hail Mary, uh, you know, of, of Valley Forge, it feels like George had to, had to get the army in shape to stand and die if necessary in the face of British fire and, um, not lose and not necessarily win, but definitely not lose. Yeah. And so, um, yes, exactly <laughs> right. And so, to that end, uh, when the Continental Army is heading into Valley Forge, there's a pretty stark to-do list that, that George Washington has in front of him. Very much and, so. And so part of, uh, part of the point that I'm making is this to-do list was to do or die, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, uh, uh, part one of my question is, would, would the war have pretty much ended if Valley Forge hadn't worked? 
Um, and then what kind of things would you put on George's to-do list for the winter? So uh, food shortage was a problem uh, at Valley Forge, as we know. And I think February was the bleakest month. Um, and I remember uh, in college learning a story about the local Amish farmers had food. And George had sent emissaries out to these um, little enclaves of Amish, asking them, begging them, please just send a few wagons of potatoes or whatever you can spare. And the Amish turned them down. And George never forgave or forgot the Amish for doing that. Like, you know, because that's Amish country, eastern Pennsylvania. And so there was food to be had. But, you know, <laughs> um, so that was kind of a neat uh, anecdote. I remember uh, this kind of a loyalty. And I don't know what the Amish thinking was there. If it was they were loyalists, loyalists or, you know, they had seen the, the British power of the British army before and didn't want it. They all were neutral for the most part. They didn't want to get involved. But but uh, to your point of um, like a, a list of things to do, Baron von Steuben, who I'm sure you do you know of or as he mentioned, We're, here, he's here he's coming up in our next episode. Not to steal too much, but um, Valley Forge is the birthplace of the uh, Continental Army in that this is a trained Prussian drill general. So let me stop is, you right. Let me stop you right there, because it's yes, interesting that you put it that way. Because you're saying Valley Forge is the birthplace of the Continental Army, which has been in existence for nearly yeah, three years at that point. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's interesting that you put it that way, because well, because he, in the army, he reorganizes the army to look something more what a European style army should be. Again, Washington's not a European officer; he's an irregular officer. He's used to frontier fighting. You know, ever since even with Ticonderoga getting the guns over, driving the British out of Boston, you know, it's nip and tuck. They never, you know, and in terms of battlefield tactics, Baron von Steuben, who's a Prussian general, will form the British Corps of Engineers, forms the British like he he really organizes the army and makes grade A officers that will then train the army. And so some would say, well, and it it seemed also like he left. There was no detailed too small to escape his notice which is the other right. thing that i thought was remarkable about about von steuben is that he would get down in the mud with them and he he knew things like where you put your latrines is yep. a, is a big deal right yep, yep. and so it prussian very very like yeah. you know, structured right <laughs> right and, and it's so and it he's, a, he's a general's general like that's the difference that steuben brings to the table that none of the other cadre of washington's generals could provide you know that 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 i guess uh charisma that training the you know, like you were saying like being just so very particular in all of the methodology of training officers and it also seemed it also seemed like once uh, you know because the food the food issues started to get resolved but it also felt like the continentals with von steuben finally saw what he was getting at and they, he made them understand the purpose of what he was doing instead of just follow my orders. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, it, it felt like he, uh, I don't know what to say, orchestrated situations where they could see themselves doing it properly and, yeah. and get some pride from that, uh, which after 1777, they surely needed some because they'd been taking a beating all year. And I think that he was able to show them, you can do this just as well yeah. as they can. Yeah. And so let's 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 act like that's true instead of 
hiding under our beds because the British keep beating us, which is, right. I think, important. Right. And then by spring of that year, I think the French uh, officially ally with us. And that causes Britain to to say, oh, oh, we better cover New York City's wide open. So they pull out of Philadelphia and kick back to New York City. And that then opens up Philly. And then I think after Valley Forge, after the winter breaks, that allows, uh, you know, Washington and company to, to dog them, to follow them and pursue and, and harry them, you know, yeah. back to New York City. So, again, pivotal for Valley Forge. They just rope-a-dope. And so, so the other argument that I'm making is that this core of the army, the one that goes into Valley Forge, is pretty much the last hope. There's not even even Horatio Gates up in uh, the northern part with with Benedict Arnold and those guys. Um, if the if the army that went into Valley Forge couldn't pull it off, is it true that that was pretty much going to be the end? That's a tough one. I mean, it's a what uh, if. without without we always say without Washington, the revolution never succeeds. So if that army disintegrates or he's, you know, his army's captured or whatnot, could Arnold go on without him? You know, or, you know, the South, you know, was it uh, Green, I think, was in the South? Yeah, Green was in the South. Yeah. I, I, I mean, mean, but, but could then they continue without. Uh, but then know. you're fragmented, right? Then then right. at that point, you're, you're there split. is. Yeah, there's yeah. no one Conquer. army. Right. Yep. There's there's different guys doing different things in different parts of the colonies. And then it's a feels like it's not too far from that to a mopping up operation. And it also right. feels like, you know, French support was pretty new. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they didn't sign the treaty till February 1778. And and, uh, you know, materials and supplies and troops didn't start making their way over for months. It took a while. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think that if Washington's army had been crushed out of Valley Forge, the French would have said, you know what? We've changed our minds. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, Why are we, we coming all this way? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We were we were showing up to to assist an existing military force that is now no more. And so anyway, we'll also send Ben Franklin home when we get back to Paris. So, yeah, um, yeah that's true, too. Do you think let me ask you this. What did France have in terms of greater aspiration for joining? Do you think France saw an opportunity to gain back what it lost in the French and Indian war. It feels like that. I mean, there's, there's always the basic, the enemy of my enemy is my friend thing. So you can't beat that. Um, But if the British lost their main foothold in North America, which the the American colonies were a pretty big chunk of British holdings, Mm -hmm. um, it, it would open the Caribbean up to the French and that's where they had the holdings they cared about at the time was all the, the lucrative French island. The other flip of that is Louisiana still technically owned by France. Yes. There's no Louisiana purchase yet. Right. So they still own a huge chunk of North America. Right. Well, between, and, between uh, French Canada, Louisiana and the Caribbean, it may have started to feel to the French, like the British uh, footprint is getting smaller. And if we help the Americans, they're going to take another big chunk out of it. Right. And that leaves the rest of the continent and the, and the Caribbean sea to us. And that puts us on top because Britain takes a huge hit. I mean, it feels like France was fairly well motivated across the board to do this, but Mm -hmm. only if it was going to work out for them. And that's, that's the key (laughs) thing is 
you know, in order for us to join the American side, there has to be an American side. Right. And that's why I think Saratoga is so watershed because it, it, they had to produce a battlefield victory to show that the continental, uh, the continentals were for real, you know, like that they could win. And, and really, um, I, I guess, you know, and, and of course attacking, uh, across the Delaware, which was your show, you know, like that was, yeah. wasn't that, I mean, that, that was another show where, where a ragtag group of continentals could beat a professional trained mercenary army. And, and for the French, it was, it, you know, it, a lot of these things that we don't necessarily talk about, but there's, there's a lot of politics, right? And in politics, you have to be able to say, well, they didn't lose every battle, right? They can, <laughs> they, <laughs> they yeah. can win. Therefore, it is not a foregone conclusion that our support is wasted, right? Right. And right. so the French are kind of begging Ben Franklin, like, listen, can we get them to just win one big one, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, because yeah. because we have to sell this to our assembly, we have to sell it to the king, we have to sell it to the people, and mm-hmm. we need more from you than just guerrilla insurgency. We've got to have a, a pitched battle, mm-hmm. and Sarah mm-hmm. and Saratoga got it for it. Yes, yes, and that's yeah, that is true. Okay. And then, of course, York, Yorktown, you know, that was later in the war. But by that point, the Navy, the French Navy shows up. and Right. And that was the other thing, too, is that the Americans didn't really have a Navy to speak of. And True. it was it was the missing piece of the puzzle. And the French knew that as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we can give you the one thing you don't have, which would at least get you closer to parity. And and if the French decided at that point, well, we're going to step back and see if you can win it now that we've helped you a little, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because politically, it would have been a disaster for there to be boatloads of French casualties coming back from a war that, you know, is technically somebody else's fight. So, yeah, yeah. but but it still boils down to December 1777, winter 1778. The stakes are still high. There's a lot riding on success at Valley Forge. And... I think that it's safe to say that if they don't pull it off, all is lost. I I agree with that completely. Okay. So we'll see what happens uh, in our next episode where we actually dig into the details of Valley Forge. George and the Army have a long cold road ahead of them, and the future of American independence hangs in the balance. There's a reason that 200 plus years later, we're still talking about Valley Forge and using its symbolism. Not for nothing, did President Biden make a campaign speech near Valley Forge? just a few weeks ago, talking about the sacred cause of democracy and how it all seemed doomed back in 1777. Valley Forge means a lot to the United States, and we'll find out soon enough. So thanks again to Colin Farrell for helping me out, and stay tuned for Valley Forge, Almost a Trainwreck, Part 3. (laughs) It's a great term. Thanks again to Colin Farrell for helping me out with actual knowledge and for helping me through some of the blind spots that I had about Military strategy in general, but in particular the American situation as uh, George Washington and the remnant of the Continental Army made their way into Valley Forge. Also a little preview of what was on George Washington's to-do list for the winter. It was not going to be easy, and we're going to cover that in detail in our next episode. So thank you for your support, and thanks again to Cullen Farrell for coming on the show.